Good morning, Storyline, and thank you for joining us. So, how are you doing? Like, really? If the answer is less than great, I want you to know you're not alone. I'm right there with you. 2020 has just been a disaster, hasn't it? I mean, it began like 1974 with an impeachment crisis, and then it quickly became 1918 and a global pandemic which turned into 1929 in an economic crash. And now it's become 1968 with massive civil unrest. Now I did a little math and all of these years, believe it or not, when you add them up together, comes out to, well, you get the point. And my friends, it's only August. <laughs> the only bright spot is we, we have an election coming up that that's sure to bring out the best and brightest voices, the most hopeful and optimistic vision for America. God help us. Even with all of that, last week Jill reminded us that this really is the best time in human history to be alive. And I think she did a brilliant job of pointing out that the church, the community of those who are trying to make the way of Jesus a way of life, has a critical role to play in the world. And this morning, I want to take a time out. I want to take our eyes off of all the challenges before us and look at how we can live out that role of making grace contagious by re-examining how we find comfort and hope in the midst of all of this political, civil, economic, and public health crisis that we now call our real everyday lives. The writers of the Bible were convinced that our comfort in a crisis and our hope for the future comes from the gospel of grace. A topic so big and beautiful, so magnificent and mysterious that there's no way to sum it up in words, but I think there are some things that we can say about the gospel that may make this comfort close and the hope more real. Gospel simply means good news. And maybe this is the obvious place to start. It is news, it's not advice. It's news, not a system. It is news, not religion. One of the most famous verses in the Bible is a quote from Jesus, often used to try to sum up the gospel, when he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. It's John 3.16. I think many of us know it. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people have turned that into a lot of things. Most tragically, some formula or transaction between us and God. Like, if we will give God our faith, and he'll hand us a ticket to heaven. As if the gospel is a deal or something that we do for God, and then in return, something God does for us but that is a massive misinterpretation of what Jesus is saying here. There is no comfort or hope in that. Jesus wasn't talking about a to-do list or some secret way for us to get to God or even the right religion. The gospel is not about what we can do. It is about something that God has already done. According to the gospel, in fact, there is nothing that we can do. There is no way for us to find, figure out, or finagle our way to God. 
Jesus's gospel of grace is not about anything that we must learn, understand, have to think, a way to vote, or even what we gotta believe in order to get God to do something for us. It is about something God has already done for us. It's already accomplished, completed. It is finished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is not about how we can come to God or what we can do for him. It's about God coming to us and what he has done for us. If we make it anything other than that, anything more than that, we're twisting it from good news into rituals, rules, regulations, and beliefs that we have to do, obey, observe, or believe in order to get God to do something for us. And that isn't grace. That is religion. And yes, even the way of Jesus can be kidnapped and twisted into a religion, some kind of man-made plan or process or procedure that if we follow it, that's how we get in. And one of Jesus's first followers, a man named Paul, saw this happening already in the very first churches. He saw people who were rescued by God's grace turn it into a religion of something that we do in order to get God to do something for us. And he saw them, he saw them ever so subtly start to live as if God loves us because we get it right, because we believe accurately about him. And so he kind of lost it. And he wrote this harshly worded letter. And fortunately, it's actually in the Bible. And this is what he said. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Jesus' life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Jesus. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion, and I'm no longer driven to impress God. Jesus lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'm not going to go back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in our relationship with God? I refuse to do that, to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Jesus died for nothing. Now, I don't know how the Bible could be more clear. The gospel is not about what we do, obey, get right, avoid, or achieve. But if our comfort and hope are supposed to come from the gospel of grace and there's nothing we can do to, to get it or earn it, what is our role in all of this? You know, there are a lot of things that I, I love about our community, none more than so many info, folks who are involved with AA feel at home and resonate with Storyline. 
And my friends in AA tell me that the road to recovery begins with humility, which they define as stark, raving honesty. If right here, right now, with the way our country, politics, public health, and economy is going, if this isn't time for some stark, raving honesty, then I don't know when it would be. But honesty is something that's often in short supply. And as much as we want to blame others for the deception, the place to start looking might be in the mirror. Now, I've shared about this before, this research um, that uh, took place on a college campus where um, researchers hooked up college students to a lie detector test and then asked them one question. Are you going to die someday? And 100% of them, of course, said Yes, and the results were that almost all of them were lying. We have an enormous capacity to fool ourselves, but the life that Jesus is inviting us into, something that he calls the abundant life, this life full of comfort and hope, it begins with stark raving honesty about our actual situation, which is what? exactly well it might be helpful to think about it this way do you know what happens in a world that's the complete opposite of 2020 where we finally get it right i mean everything where humanity gets its act together and we elect the right leaders we pass the best laws what happens in a world where we have perfect equality cancer is cured the air is pure weapons are banned and food is free Heck, let's throw in there that the Lions win the Super Bowl. Like, miracle. Do you know what happens in that world? Everyone still dies. In the very best world that any one of us could ever imagine, a world, by the way, which is very much worth working for and struggling for. I'm not saying it's not. But even in that world, everyone, everyone dies. There's nothing that we can do to solve our biggest problem. There is no advice, no system, policy, deal, transaction, or religion that cures death. In his book, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker claims that while we like to deny this reality, much of our life is actually consumed with it. And so we take on what he calls immortality projects to somehow, some way, try to outlive the inevitable, our own death. Now certainly some of our immortality projects can do great good in the world, but just as often, they turn us inward. They, they make the center of our life me, my, mine. Who cares about me? Who respects me? Who's thinking about me? And what are they thinking? In other words, our life becomes consumed with what we can get, do, achieve, attain, earn, experience, accumulate, accomplish in order to somehow prove to ourselves and maybe even others, maybe even especially others, that we matter, that we made a difference. The problem with this strategy for finding comfort and hope, for defeating death, well, first of all, it doesn't work. And second, it often creates hell on earth in us 
around us, and for other people. Because we can never outrun the inevitable. And deep down, we know it. There is no peace, no comfort, no hope or joy in a life that only matters if we have to somehow find our own way to, de de to defeat death. Because we can't. Maybe this is why Catherine of Siena said, it is heaven all the way to heaven, but it is hell all the way to hell. So again, the question remains, where does our hope and comfort come from? Is there nothing that we can do? In the introduction to his commentary on this letter that Paul wrote to some earlier followers that we quoted earlier, Martin Luther was talking about our situation and he asks this very question. Is there nothing then that we can do? And he answers his own question like this. No, nothing. Yet, C.S. Lewis wrote, God has never seen one of his children die. Only come home. This hope, this coming home to God, is something we can all live with when we get honest about what we can't do, defeat death, and see the beauty of what God has already done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is how we move beyond a life that depends on our immortality project. By accepting our acceptance, Jesus' death goes for something that he did for the whole world, to something he did for me and for you. What we often call accepting our acceptance, the Bible refers to as repentance and faith. And we're gonna dive into the deep end of the pool here for a second, so hang in with me. We are by nature religious beings. And that means that we want a system. We desperately want a secret or a shortcut that we can control that earns, secures our hope and comfort. And we can even turn repentance and faith into a system. And that's why Paul wrote this nasty letter to these early followers that we just read. So it's very important for us to understand that according to the gospel, it is not, it is not our repentance and faith that saves us. It is God's grace that saves us. Not what we do, but what God has done. Look, there, there are a lot of very religious people who think God is on their side because of their faith. Maybe you know someone like that. Like, I believe all the right things, and therefore God is on my side. But that's not so. God is on everyone's side. For God so loved the world. That's the good news of grace. And yet, and yet, there is a very important relationship between our faith and God's grace. Years ago, I heard this news story of a house on fire and a little girl trapped in the second story. Smoke was pouring out of the window and the people below were begging her to jump and she wouldn't do it. Her father came upon this horrific scene and ran below the window and said, sweetheart, you have to jump. 
And everyone else could see that her plan to wait this out, her plan to try and ignore reality wasn't gonna work for very long. But she said, but daddy, I can't see you. And he told her, sweetheart, that's okay. I can see you. I love this story and I've shared it before because I think it's helpful for us to see that we don't have to fully understand or see God to trust him. Only trust that he sees us. But let's carry this story out a little further. Suppose the little girl still wouldn't jump. Let's say she had another objection like, uh, Daddy, I can't jump that far. I'm not strong enough. I can't jump all the way to you. So her father said, Sweets, when you jump, you'll fall. I see you and I'll catch you. And then she has one last objection, but daddy, your arms aren't strong enough. And he said, it's okay. And he stretched out his arms to his daughter. I'm going to catch you with my heart. Now trust me, jump and fall into me. And she did. And she was saved. Now let's think about what the father was saying to his daughter. Stop. That's what he's saying. Stop. Get honest about your situation. Stop trusting in your plan to survive. It isn't going to work. That honesty and humility is repentance. But the father didn't stop there. He said, you don't have to do anything. I'm already here for you. You don't even have to jump all the way to me. I'm right here. Just jump and then fall into me. This little girl was saved, but it was not because of her repentance or even her faith. Now, how do we know that? Well, think about it. Let's say she had all of this. Let's say that she had the stark raving honesty to see her situation, the humility to admit that her plan wasn't gonna work, and the faith to jump out of the window. If her father isn't there to catch her, she still dies when she hits the pavement. Her repentance was necessary, but that's not what saved her. Her faith was necessary, but that's not what saved her. She was saved because of her father's grace, the strength of his love for her. And it is important for us to see that the father was already on her side. He was already doing everything that he could to rescue her. Too many religious people act as if God only rushed to their window because they got it right. They believe the right things about God. But that isn't true. God, if, if that was true, God isn't gracious. God's just making a deal with us. I'll save you if you'll believe in me. But that's not how it works. Go back to the little girl. Without her repentance, giving up on her plan to survive, and her faith in her father's love for her, trusting in his, that he can see her, and that he's strong enough to catch her with his heart, Without her repentance, without her faith, his grace couldn't save her. Now that's very, very different than saying God saves those who believe in him because they believe in him. Way too many religious people think this 
And then they kind of live that way. And they give off what the Bible calls the odor of death. This sanctimonious, self-righteous superiority. Like God loves me and saved me because I'm good. Because of what I believe. Which is why it's so often and so easy for them to dismiss people who don't believe like they do. They see them as unloved by God. And nothing could be further from the truth. The good news of the gospel begins with this reality. There is nothing we can do to get to God. But thank God he has come to us. There is nothing we can do to get God on our side. But thank God, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God is already on our side. This is all we can do. Stop, trust, jump, and then fall into the heart of God. It is that simple. God does not save us because of our faith, but he can't catch someone who refuses to jump, then fall. This is the gospel. Do you see it? Do you see the beauty of it? On the one hand, it utterly defeats self-righteousness because it's not about what we can do or achieve or understand or believe. This little girl didn't do anything to deserve her father's grace. And that means there's nothing that she can do to lose it, and that should give us great comfort. Uh, But on the other hand, it also completely upends any self-consciousness or self-loathing about what we've done who we aren't, how we've fallen, or how we've failed. And that should give us great hope. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, grace has been unleashed on the world. God is now on the side of everyone, everywhere, every day. He is standing below every window, inviting everyone, I see you. Stop trusting in your plan and jump into my love. The only thing left for us to do is jump and fall into the grace of God. This is the simple gospel. Well, in case you haven't noticed, the house is on fire. (laughs) I mean, things are burning down around us. Maybe if you're like me, they're burning down within us. And there is no plan, there is no secret, there is no ritual, rule, regulation, or religion that can save us. Our immortality projects aren't going to work. It's time for some stark raving honesty because it's 1918, 1929, 1968, and 1974 out there, and it's 2020 in here. Thank God. Into all of that comes Jesus and the comfort and hope of his simple gospel of grace. What might the rest of this year look like if we were to jump and then fall into God's love? Maybe it could save 2020. Maybe it could save us. And maybe it could save even the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this opportunity to be together. 
We thank you that you have come for us, that you have come to us. I pray that you would give us the faith to jump and then fall into your arms of love. God, I pray that we would find great comfort in giving up on all of the things that we think we have to do, become, or achieve. I I pray that you would give us hope in spite of who we aren't, who we aren't yet, the mistakes we've made, because we are finding our, our comfort and hope in you and in your grace and in your arms. I pray that we would give off the aroma of life as we try to live in your grace and to live it out and that we would be people who would invite others to come and see and savor your beauty and brilliance and your simple gospel of grace. I pray that as we log off, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Folks, thanks for joining us. Don't forget, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, we have another Zoom call about race, disparity, and reconciliation. And in a few weeks, on August 30th, our hope is that we're going to have a baby dedication and baptism uh, gathering and more details to follow. Check your email blasts for details on that. But if that's something you're interested in, please get in touch with us and let us know. Have a great day.